This is Fogland Lighthouse. I'm Jack Dean. It begins and ends like everything else does with the sea. At the west end of the North Sea is an island, buffeted by storms, pummeled by waves. This tiny realm has withstood invasions, protected its waters, expanded its citizenry, and survived through the years, fed on a viscous stew of sheer grit and bloody-mindedness. As turmoil has swept the mainland, it has retained its independence, its three-coloured flag waving high over the untoppled towers of its royal family. I speak of course, of the Principality of Sealand. Let's go back a bit. 1. Paddy Roy Bates, or just Roy to those that knew him, was no stranger to cold water and harsh living. When he was a young boy in Southend-on-Sea, his father would run a bath on a winter evening, let it freeze overnight in an unheated bathroom, break the ice up in the morning and throw his son in. This was supposed to toughen him up. And if nothing else, Roy Bates was tough. He sought out privation and conflict wherever he could find it. He dropped out of school at 15 years old to go and fight in the Spanish Civil War, allegedly on both sides. And when the Second World War came around, he left a protected job to volunteer for the army. He was flung into one of its grisliest battles, the hellish meat grinder of Monte Cassino. A four-month slog through an impossibly fortified stretch of the Italian Alps in the heart of winter that claimed 75,000 lives. Roy was stabbed, shot, got frostbite, stepped on a landmine and was blown up by a grenade. He was in and out of military hospitals and would be scarred for the rest of his life. But he lived, and according to him, it was great fun, and he'd do it all again if he had the chance. Roy went back to his hometown, married and had children. But he was always trying to find an adventure to match the excitement of war. Several businesses were started, a butcher shop, an estate agent, a fin manufacturing company. The only one that didn't fail spectacularly was a fishing operation running out of an old military boat Roy had bought on the cheap. But nothing was sustaining his interest. Until, in the mid-1960s, he was drawn into the wild frontiers of pirate radio. 2. In the 60s, radio was a monopoly of the BBC, and the BBC had no time for the vulgar new art form of pop music. To meet the public demand that they wouldn't, a host of unlicensed radio stations started broadcasting from a flotilla of ships drifting a few miles off the coast. See, at the time, if you were more than three nautical miles offshore, you were out of British territorial waters, and thus much, much harder to arrest and prosecute. Pirate radio was often a ramshackle DIY affair, but it was also big money. Advertisers that couldn't get airplay on the BBC would pay serious cash for airtime, and some stations were making the equivalent of millions of pounds a year in today's money. And so Roy set his sights on getting a slice of the action. But he was thinking bigger than boats. Russ Tower is one of the Maunsell Forts, a series of structures that were built during World War II in the waters around southeast England. It has a rectangular platform at the top, 50 feet wide and 120 feet long, and two hollow concrete legs that sink down to the ocean floor 60 feet below. In the wall, more than 100 men were stationed there, manning the anti-aircraft guns, 
sleeping in the legs with no sunlight and little heat, watching the skies for Luftwaffe planes. But it had been abandoned in the 50s, and now it was standing there, right for the taking. There were other Mansell forts closer to home, and Roy had dabbled with occupying these in the early days of his station, Radio Essex. But what made Ruff's Tower such a prize was precisely how far away it was. Seven nautical miles offshore. Sure, a rival pirate radio station called BBMS was already set up there, but Roy wasn't worried about that. At 10 p.m. on Christmas Day 1966, Roy, his 14-year-old son Michael, and a crew of Radio Essex heavies took the family fishing boat out to Ruff's Tower. As the BBS team sat stewing in turkey farts, they climbed the ladders to the platform and stormed the fort, holding heavy iron bars that glinted menaciously in the candlelight. A truce was negotiated with BBMS, but Ruff's Tower was Roy's, and he would never give it up. Other pirate radio stations would try and seize the fort from the Bates family. But Michael dropped out of school like his father to be a full-time guardian of the fort. Defended it every time. Eight times over the summer of 67, the enemy came by boat. And eight times, Michael fought them off single-handed, throwing rocks, firing air pistols, and even chucking petrol bombs down to set their boats ablaze. Amazingly, no one got seriously hurt. The British government was still not happy about these shenanigans, so they set in motion Operation Callow. While an agent of the Ministry of Defence tied Roy up in South End with talk of buying the platform off him, a squad of Marines pulled up to Ruff's Tower and told Michael that it had already been sold. Michael was having none of it, and when the Marines found they couldn't even climb the rope ladder up onto the platform, he calmly shimmied down it into their boat, told them he wasn't leaving and sent them on their way. Operation aborted. Roy's dream of a pirate radio empire was scuppered when BBC Radio 1 began broadcasting in September 1967. No one was going to listen to choppy transmissions from weirdos in the North Sea when they could get their pop music easily and legitimately on land. But Roy, as always, was unperturbed. He had a whole other empire in mind. 3. Four things are required for a place to be officially declared a state in international law. A. A permanent population. B. A defined territory. C. A government. And D. Capacity to enter into relations with other states. Roy realised that he already had A and B, even if his defined territory was only 6,000 square feet of shabby concrete, and his permanent population was often as little as one. If he could get C and D, he could open up the ultimate gap in the market. A brand new state, wholly controlled by him and his family. In 67, they declared independence. Roy was made Prince Roy, his wife Princess Joan, and his son and daughter Crown Prince Michael and Crown Princess Penny. A few invited friends watched as the tricolour flag of the Principality of Sealand was hoisted for the first time its three diagonal stripes zagging through the gale-blown autumn skies. Red for Roy, black for pirate radio, white for the path of purity that they would try and steer the new nation along, with mixed results. With the flag came a motto, E mare libertas, from the sea, freedom. They had their government. That was A, B and C covered. 
they just had to figure out D. Soon they were issuing passports, minting currency and bestowing titles. For the right price, you could be a count, a duke, an earl, whatever your seedy inner blue blood desired. Thousands of stamps were put on envelopes and circulated through the global postal system. Almost all left undelivered since Sealand had no formal postal agreements with anyone. The British government was increasingly livid about its new so-called neighbour. They found a disillusioned ex-con from Roy's old pirate radio crew and secretly gave him clearance to take Ruff's tower back by force on their behalf. But it seemed he wasn't quite disillusioned enough to risk messing with Roy. So instead he just sold the story to the papers and left the poor Ministry of Defence embarrassed and empty-handed once again. Recapture came within their grasp again when Michael and Roy were arrested for firing warning shots, this time with a real gun, at a government maintenance boat that passed through Sealandic territorial waters. They hauled them into court and charged them with a legal discharge of a firearm. But the judge ruled that British law didn't reach out to Ruff's Tower, and the Bates boys walked free. Roy had gotten the crown off his back, but he had another problem. His new nation was losing money hand over fist. The hard, brutal work of making the platform inhabitable again, of getting the spluttering old generator online, of laying wires and clearing debris, was taking years and costing way more than the sales of national paraphernalia were raising. They needed a cash injection. Enter the Germans. Four. Professor Alexander Gottfried Achenbach had all the trappings of a serious international businessman. He had supposedly made his fortune in diamonds and was lured out of retirement by the promise of adventure that Sealand offered. Roy took a shine to Achenbach and gave him the titles of Minister of Foreign Affairs and Prime Minister for Life. He seemed to take this role pretty seriously, starting diplomatic relations with 150 countries, securing legal opinions in favour of Sealand's legitimacy, co-authoring the country's constitution, and even trying to renounce his German citizenship to become solely a denizen of Sealand. Achenbach had a plan that would turn the country into a certified money spinner. The platform would be expanded, adding a casino, a heliport, a hotel and an oil refinery. Achenbach offered Roy a billion Deutschmarks for the fort and invited him and his wife Joan out to Austria for negotiations. But this was a cover to lure them away from home. Achenbach was a con man. He wasn't a real professor. He didn't have a billion Deutschmarks. He was never intending to buy Sealand. He was going to steal it. On the 13th of August, 1978, a helicopter pulled up to Sealand. Michael recognized the people on board as friends of Achenbach, so he pulled away the mast that blocked the helipad and let them land. The next minute, he was trussed up and thrown into a storage room. He stayed there overnight, with only the Sealandic flag to wrap around him for warmth, urinating in a biscuit tin cursing his misfortune. They bundled him into a boat the next day and sent him to Holland. A few days later, the Bateses were all back in Southend. Roy was furious at Michael for losing the fort, but he wasn't giving up. He knew someone with a helicopter too. They assembled at 3am on an empty airfield. There was Michael, Roy, Barry, Harkus, Willie and John. John was the pilot, all you need to know about Barry, Harkus and Willie is they were loyal to Roy and they had guns. They heard that the Germans had reinforcements on the way, so there was no time to lose. They flew over Sealand at dawn, 
tossed down ropes and abseiled onto the platform. Michael fired a shotgun into the air. Its crackling blast stunned the occupiers into submission, and it was over. The invaders surrendered and were taken prisoner. All but one of them were released straight away. But Gerno Putz was sentenced by Prince Roy to pay a fine of 75,000 Deutschmarks. A fairly light sentence for treason. And held until someone coughed up, doing housework and chores for the Bateses while they waited. They let him go a few weeks later when they realised they were never getting that fine money. But over the course of this brief hostage crisis, they did get something of even more value to them. The German ambassador visited Sealand to negotiate Putz's release. They had entered into relations with other states. They had the A, B, C and D of nationhood. 5. Roy died in 2012. In his last days, he was haunted by visions of war and a paranoid fear of invaders. His son Michael has taken over the reins of government, though the day-to-day maintenance and occupation of the fort is done by others these days. Achenbach and his cronies call themselves the Sealandic government in exile, touting a strange mix of paranormal pseudoscience and Nazi propaganda from their website. What makes a nation... Forgetting international law for a second, what makes one for you? A flag, a currency, a culture, a collection of shared beliefs? Does it need recognition by others, or does it matter more how it sees itself? You might think Sealand is a real nation. You might think it is the deranged pet project of a veteran-turned-pirate-turned-unhinged loon. Or maybe both. If you do believe Sealand's story of nationhood, then it is a nation like no other. Like most nations, though, it is full of paradoxes. It is an absolute monarchy, but anyone can join their nobility. Titles are still for sale on Sealand.gov. It gets 99% of its power from renewable energy. Its knackered old petrol generator now nearly fully replaced by sleek new solar panels and wind turbines but it's funded in part by destructive fishing interests owned by the Bates family. It has violence and political turmoil in its past, but its shores have never seen a murder, a rape or an execution. Its borders are open and it has never declared a war. Like most nations, its future is uncertain. The architect of Ruff's Tower said it would last 200 years, but that still gives the nation an expiration date somewhere in 2142. Like any new nation, it has both countless threats and boundless potential. But most of all, I think, it holds up a mirror to a bigger island, seven nautical miles across the sea. What if that old, old nation started again anew, open about its past, but hopeful about its future, a bundle of people who came from across the sea, seeking freedom? Fogland Lighthouse is written, produced and scored by me, Jack Dean. This episode is supported by Arts Council England and was commissioned by The Library Presents as part of their autumn season. You can check that out through the links in the liner notes for this episode. The show is presented by Jack Dean and Company. You can find out more about us and our projects at jackdean.co.uk. We're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Or you can email me on jack at jackdean.co.uk. 
If you get a moment, please leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or share the podcast with someone you think might like it. Those both help an awful lot. I'll catch you guys next week.